Amen, amen. Good morning, Seven Mile Road. How are you doing this morning? Good. I felt better than the first service. That means, that's, I guess that's what happens when you get to church later, you have more energy. Uh, well, my name is Ioma Periola, and I am the pastor of the West Church. Uh, we are a six-month-old church plant in the A-Leaf community of Southwest Houston, uh, and I am delighted, delighted to be here. Um, I was telling the earlier service that I spent many of days, Tuesdays and Thursdays in the past year here at Together for the City in the auditorium the building right next door uh, with myself and about seven or eight other church planters as we gather to meet and train and pray and dream about what God would do in each of our respective communities. Our church plant, we love Seven Mile Road and we love your pastor. Jeremiah has been a breath of fresh air and wind in my sails um, on many days. And not only him, but Tyler and uh, Michael and Peter. Uh, it has been a joy. It's like I feel like I've known many of you. Some of you I've actually met at the coffee shop by my house. But I feel like I've known you um, through interaction with your pastor uh, over the past year. And it's such a joy to, to be here. Now, he told me that I could preach on whatever I wanted. And so, you know. That could be dangerous, <laughs> but I, I really struggled. I'm not going to lie. I struggled. What am I going to say? What am I going to preach on? And I was thinking over it. I was looking over sermons I've preached in the past, and I was trying to get a feel for what the Lord wanted me to preach on. Then one day uh, I was driving. I was at the barbershop. I took my sons to get their haircuts, and I was reading a book that Jeremiah gave me a couple months ago when I came up here with one of our staff members. It's a book by Mike Mason titled Champagne for the Soul. Now, with a title like that, you know, that's a book you got to take slowly. You don't just, like I do, I just devour books and then throw it away. I said, man, I need, I need, a, I need a slow boogie through this bad boy. And so uh, I moonwalked through it, and I was sitting in the barbershop with my sons, and I, I was in need of joy. The book Champagne for the Soul is a book all about joy. The author spent 90 days in an experiment on pursuing joy in every single day, regardless of circumstances or situations. And as we were getting into the car to leave the barbershop, I was having a kind of a, you know, one of the days you just wake up kind of like, man, I don't, I feel off. Like circumstantial stuff was going on. I just didn't feel at peace. And when you got young kids, when you go anywhere, you really only have one objective, leave the location with the same amount of kids as you came with. So I put them in the car. We got home, and then I realized, oh, snap, I lost my book. That was the only thing that was getting me through the day. And so I looked in the car, couldn't find it. And I was like, Lord, first of all, you know, like I, I'm having a rough time right now. I need joy. My name, Ayo, means joy. My full name, Ayo Mide, means my joy has come, but I ain't got none of it right now. And that book was helping me. I said, I got to call. I don't want to call Jeremiah tell him I need another copy or just buy one on Amazon. So I went back. So I prayed. Then I went back into the car. I found it right in the slither between the door and the driver passenger seat. And I thought, okay, God, I get it. I'm going to preach about joy. On my way here this morning, I left the house in plenty of time to get here because I wanted to be here when they told me to be here. I left Southwest Houston only to realize that 59 was closed. So I'm sitting and I'm texting Tyler like, hey, man, I'm running late. Things just aren't going right. The traffic from the closing of 59 clears up. I get on San Felipe. I'm at the corner of San Felipe and another street like five minutes down from here. And now a train's coming. I text Tyler again, hey, man. I'm going to be even later than what I thought. He's not responding to either of my texts, so I call him. I said, you know, went straight to voicemail, so I called him again. It rang. I said, all right, man, I'm running late. I get here. He said, hey, I'm sorry I missed your call on your text. I'm on study leave. Hope it goes great today. 
It's like, all right, Lord, today I'm going to talk about how to be okay even when life is not. Today we are going to be looking at Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23 in a sermon that I've titled, The Secret to Contentment. How to be okay even when life is not okay. If you don't hear me say anything else, I want you to hear this, that your life circumstances, whether good or bad, do not determine your joy. The God who promises to meet all of your needs does. Your life circumstances do not determine your joy. The God who promises to meet all of your needs does. And Paul begins in verses 10 through 13 with our first point, joy and contentment. Look at me in verse 10. He says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you spend any length of time in the book of Philippians, then you would know that the book of Philippians is all about joy. In chapter 1, Paul shows the relationship between joy and suffering. Chapter 2, he shows the relationship at the beginning of chapter 2 between joy and selflessness. The latter part of chapter 2 is all about joy and community. Chapter 3 is all about joy and maturity. And now when we get to the end of chapter 4, at the end of the book of Philippians, he shows us the relationship between joy and contentment. Which means, friends, that joy and contentment are not two mutually exclusive ideas or theories or thoughts. They are two well-known friends who gladly occupy the same space. Throughout Philippians, Paul is trying to show us the relationship that joy has to every area of your life. Now, if you wrestle with contentment, if you struggle with it, I have good news. I would define contentment as a hard agreement with God about where you are, while having a trust in him about where you are not. A hard agreement with God about where you are and a trust in him about where you are not. What I love about this is that for all of us who would be honest with ourselves and say, I struggle with being content, Paul has good news because he says, before he gets into much of the passage, he says, I have learned. Somebody say learned. Verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatever season. That's, that's good news because that means, number one, that part of what that means is that nobody is born in a PH, with a Ph.D. in contentment. We must all enter Christ's school of contentment and learn how to trust God regardless of life circumstances and situations. Part of that means you have to learn what it means to trust God when everything is going well in your life. But it also means you have to learn what it means to trust God when life is a dumpster fire. For Paul, his joy was not held captive by his life circumstances or his situation. So you are not in control of the circumstances and the situations that you face, but friends, you are in control of how you respond. And for Paul, he, his joy was rooted in the one in whom his strength came from. 
He says, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have a little. I know what it's like to be well-fed. I know what it's like to be hungry, that his circumstances were irrelevant when it came to fighting for his joy because his, his mind wasn't focused on what was going on around him. Rather, his eyes was focused on the God who reigned above him and promised to be with him regardless of what he faced. So that means if, if this is how he made it through life, having a joy that was rock solid, Regardless of what was going on in his life, it's important for us to know how we can experience the same. So what I want to do is I want to share with you what I call the three-headed dragon of discontentment. The three-headed dragon of discontentment. The first, of the, the first head of the three-headed dragons I call the life dragon. Somebody say life. The life dragon. By that I mean an unhealthy desire for a life that God never intended for you to have. If God wanted you to have your neighbor's life, he would have created you as your neighbor. But he did not. The God who created the universe flung the stars into the sky and knows every grain of sand that is sitting on Galveston Beach right now did not make a mistake when he created you. Discontentment arises when you start looking at other people and wishing that you have their lives, but what you're saying is, God, you've made a mistake with mine. Instead of lusting for a life that is not yours, learn to love the life that God gave you. The rapper Andy Mineo says it better than I could. He says, don't let your food get cold looking at somebody else's plate. The second head of the three-headed dragon I call the seasoned dragon. Somebody say season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it when you talk back to me. I feel like I'm back in my church. <laughs> the seasoned dragon. By that I mean you may not dislike where you are in your life. Excuse me. You may not dislike your life entirely, but you may dislike where you are in your life. Or put another way, perpetual shooting star syndrome, P-S-S-S. Uh, you won't find that on WebMD because I made it up. But the point is this. If a friend comes up to you and they say, hey, uh, hey, man, I was camping and saw a shooting star, and I just, man, I just kind of wished I was in a different season of life, you probably wouldn't respond any kind of way. You'd be like, okay, that's cool. But if they told you, They've been spending every night at Discovery Green Park waiting for a shooting star so they could wish themselves into another season of life. You would respond, bro, you got a problem. But that's how discontentment arises. As a child, you are just wishing you were a teenager. Then as a teenager, you were just wishing you had a license. Then as a teenager with a license, you're just wishing you were growing and out the house and in college. Then as a college student, you're just wishing to be out working in the real world with a real job as if the last 18 to 20 years you'd been living in the metaverse. Uh, but, or I know this is the, the older crowd or the bizarro world, for, if you re remember that episode from Seinfeld. Some of you are like, I don't even know what Seinfeld is. It was... One of America's greatest TV shows, a show about nothing, which hopefully the sermon is about more than that. <laughs> then you're wishing for two weeks vacation from your job. Then you're wishing for a family of your own. Then you're wishing for retirement until you ultimately end up just wishing to see Jesus face to face. That's how discontentment slowly, subtly sneaks, always wishing you were somewhere else and not enjoying where you are. If I'm honest, if I can be completely transparent 100, this is the one I struggle with the most. My wife mentioned that we have three young kids, five, Ezra, Simeon is three, Eden is one, and I go to sleep at night wishing I would wake up with them out of my house and off my payroll. 
If you can't say amen, just say ouch. <laughs> I go to these graduations. My, I was just at a high school graduation. I want to go to these college graduations. Everyone, the commencement speaker is always like, and now all the parents, you're just so excited that your kids are off your payroll. You're not paying tuition. And a part of me, I'll be like, yeah. But wait, wait, wait. I'm not. I'm, I'm a long way from there. <laughs> but if I'm honest, I can't wait for the day where they can make their own meals, run their own errands, better yet, run my errands for me. Right? There's nothing wrong with, with praying, working, and wanting to be in a better season. There is something wrong when that consumes so much of your mental, emotional, and spiritual energy that you cannot be thankful and grateful for the season you are in right now. The third head of the three-headed dragon I simply just called the God dragon. By that I mean lowercase g God. It's essentially the reality that you wish you had a different God. Discontentment arises oftentimes because we feel that God is holding out on us. Many of us want a God that tells us everything we want, gives us everything we want, when we want it, how we want it, and on our schedule. But of course you realize that what you want isn't the God of the Bible as revealed in Scripture. What you want sounds strikingly similar to a Cinco de Mayo piñata that you hit with a stick of prayer in order to get all the good stuff on the inside. Did Paul have a reason to be upset at the way his life turned out after following Jesus? Let's be honest, the imprisonments, the chains, the shipwreck, the persecution. Did he have a reason to, to say, man, you know what, I just want to retire early. I've been traveling, preaching, writing, teaching for a very long time. I'm just going to let these young bucks, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Luke, you guys do all the hard work. I'm going to find some island to retreat on and drink some tropical fruit juice out of a coconut with an umbrella on the inside. You guys do. We don't find him shaking his fist at God saying, God, why is all this happening to me? Rather, verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13, I think, is a verse that is very well known, yet not very well lived, because most of us only associate it with 50% of life. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, do you want to win a championship? Which, if you're a Houston Rocket fan, the answer is no. But let's act like, let's act like we lived in San Francisco. And we remember we were rooting for the Golden State Warriors. Do you want to win a championship? Yes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Do you want to change the world with your organization, your political party, your product, your whatever? Yes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That sounds all well and good. But what about when you lose? What about when the doctor tells you that the cancer has returned in its stage four this time, like a young woman in our church was just told? And you're not even 30 yet. Can you do that? Through Christ. Paul could. Paul could. He leaned on the God who was his strength, and that enabled him to persevere through every and any season that life brought his way. That the strength of Jesus is not only for the mountaintop, friends, it's also for the valley. And it's ironic, it's in the valley where you really get to know him. I would say, Paul, that sounds good, but you're in prison. It's hard to be content when you're locked up. And he would respond to me, well, Isle, you forgot what I said in Philippians 1.12. I want you to know, brothers, that this is really served in order to advance the gospel. Okay, fine. So you're suffering for Christ. Cool, I got it. But, Paul, what if it doesn't end well for you? 
What if you die? Then he would say, well, you skipped that verse in chapter 1, verse 21, where I said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In his mind, there is nothing on this side of eternity that was going to rob him of his joy. Because his joy was centered in the one who had freed him. His joy was, let me put it another way, that the secret to contentment is this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He is enough when life is going well. He is enough when life is not going well. He is enough when your children are behaving. He is enough when you wonder if their children are really yours because of how they're acting. Well, some of us were like, oh, yeah, that is my kid because of how they're acting. He's enough when depression hits. He's enough when you can't be with people for two years because you're isolated. He's He's always enough. And so that means the question that we have to ask ourselves and our journey to contentment is simply this. Is he enough for you? Is he enough for you? For Paul, he was. That there was no circumstance too great, no sorrow too deep, that his joy would not triumph over. The secret to contentment is simply Jesus is enough. One of the keys to slaying the three-headed dragon of discontentment that I mentioned earlier. I love it. One of the arsenals that God gives us in our weaponry, one of the great dragon slayers is the gift of gratitude. He notes this later in chapter 4, but all throughout the book, he begins chapter 1, verse 3, and he says, I want to thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He says, every time I think about you, I have an abundance of joy welling up in gratitude, overflowing like a volcano in my soul for you. That for the Christian, that thanksgiving and gratitude isn't just reserved for the last Thursday in November. For us, it is our way of life. It is our way of life. We are people who are rooted and grounded in the great God and what he's done for us. Since Paul is not only thankful for their partnership, he's thankful for them. He says, because you, I'm thankful for him because God is enough and, and you've been enough for me. So what that means is you may not have the house you want, but you have him, and he has to be enough. You may not have the car you want, but if you have him, then you have enough. You may not have the career you want or live in the neighborhood, but Paul is saying if you have him, he is enough. When you have tasted the gratitude and the goodness of God, you'll want to share with others. When you think about your life, this could be homework for you. You know, it's always funny telling church people do homework because when you leave here you think about eating and probably you won't remember the sermon but if you if you have any time later on today just sit and think God let me just write down all the things I'm thankful for my family my friends my favorite restaurant my pet all these things if that was your full-time job you would realize that even if it was your full-time job you would not have enough time to thank God for all that he's done for you like the old the way the old saints used to say if we had 10,000 tongues Lord it would not be enough. And yet, all of that, your family, your car, your favorite restaurant, the, the things that you enjoy, that you're grateful for God for, all of that, that's the icing. Christ is the cake. And when you, when you, have, when you have enjoyed and, and relished in the goodness of God, you will, you will want to share with others. My kids, they watch this show, well, they used to watch this show on PBS Kids called Word World, where they would build things with words. And the pig would often, he would build a cake. 
So they would spell out the word cake, C-A-K-E. They would spell it out. It looked like a cake. And then uh, they would, the, the pig would slice the cake. I didn't know, you know, pigs don't eat cake, but you get it. Kids, they'll believe anything. And then the, kid, the, the pig would start eating the cake, and then, then the people in the audience would say, hey, don't eat the cake. Share the cake. Anytime my kids would see me eating cake, whether it's a birthday party or I just snuck it in the house, it's like, Dad, don't eat the cake. Share the cake. Of course, my thought is, boy, I pay for this cake. This is my cake. <laughs> when, when you start contributing to the household, then you can start buying your own cake. What Paul's saying is when you've tasted the goodness and the generosity and the gratitude of God, when your soul is satisfied, it won't only be good for you, you'll want to share with other people. You will want to share it with other people. Says, is, your soul, is your soul satisfied today? Are you grateful for what the Lord Jesus has done for you? It, is that still what gets you out of bed in the morning? If you are here today and you're not a Christian, Jesus being enough, if the question I asked earlier, is he enough for you? If you answered yes to that question, that's the beginning of the journey of life with him. If you're here and you are a Christian and you answered yes to that question, that's the secret to your contentment. Listen, don't spend your life being a grumpy, grouchy, grinch Christian. Rather, spend it being a grateful one. So not only do we see joy and contentment gladly cohabitating the same space, not only is gratitude a dragon slayer in our arsenal to destroy the, de the, the dragons of discontentment, but so is generosity. Look at me in our second point. Celebrate generosity in verses 14 through 20. He says this, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God, there it is, verse 19, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here, Paul expresses his gratitude for the Philippians in supporting his ministry as he first preached the gospel to them and set out on his missionary journeys through Macedonia. They were the only church that partnered with him financially. He wants them to know, I have never forgotten it, and neither has God. He wants to take a moment to celebrate their generosity to him as he is furthering the advance of the mission of proclaiming God's truth in all of Asia Minor. He's saying, I haven't forgotten it, and neither has God. He uses a business metaphor in verse 17. He says, I pray that more will be credited to your account. He says that God still sees, he is pleased, and he rejoices in your great generosity. Essentially, he's saying, if I could put it in layman's terms, he's saying, uh, your offshore account in the bank of heaven is growing because of your generosity here on earth. Paul wants them to know that, that he is grateful for their generosity 
and that it is something that should be celebrated and something that should be rejoiced in. He's thanking them essentially for being gospel patrons. It may seem strange that he's using Old Testament imagery, calling their, uh, their generosity a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. He's not trying to reinstitute the, old, the Israel's Old Testament form of worship. What he's saying is simply uh, generosity is still costly and it is still a sweet aroma to the Lord. What he is saying is that you all have been wonderful gospel patrons. You all have been wonderful gospel patrons. You have to remember that the Philippian church, they weren't a mega church, right? From what we know, Acts 16, the ferocious businesswoman and entrepreneur Lydia was there. We're told that she, is a per- she was a uh, seller of purple goods. She gets converted, first convert in the Philippian church. Then, while Paul and Silas are in prison in Acts 16, as, he, as they are singing, praising God, the Philippian jailer, and his household, they get converted and they get baptized. So you got Lydia in the house, and she's a member of the church. You got the Philippian jailer and his family, and you probably got a handful of other people. So this isn't a mega church, but their generosity, friends, had a mega impact. Just thank you for being ever, There is never a gift too small when it comes to supporting the mission of God in the world. Even as Michael earlier shared about every shelter, you, you see that God's people... And God's resources are connected on God's mission. John Reinhart, in his book, Gospel Patrons, he introduced me to people that I've never knew about. People like Henry Monmouth, people like Selena Hastings, a.k.a. Lady Huntington, people like uh, uh, John Thornton, people I never knew. Now, I, I knew of William Tyndale. I knew of George Whitfield. I knew of John Newton. Tyndale, of course, was the brave and courageous gentleman who translated the Bible from Latin into English. Whitfield was, depending on who you ask, one of the greatest preachers in American colonies and in the U.K., preaching to over 10 million people over his lifetime with none of this, no mic, no love, no nothing, just Holy Spirit, gusto, and girth, and uh, really strong vocal cords. And, of course, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, which, of course, was entitled Amazing Grace when he wrote it. But Henry Monmouth had no idea that he was a really well-known businessman and cloth merchant sitting in the back of the church, maybe in the balcony. After hearing Tyndale preach, he comes up to him and he says, I usually fall asleep on the other preachers in London, but I didn't fall asleep on your sermon. Which, by the way, if you, ever, if you don't, if you want to know how to encourage your pastor, just tell him, man, I, I was awake the whole time. <laughs> now, I know you guys hear great messages here every Sunday, so I'm sure none of you fall asleep, but I fall asleep on a lot of people, so what comes around comes around. He says, that's what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to translate the Bible from Latin into English because nobody understands Latin. Not even the priests who are preaching from the Bible. Monmouth says, I'll be the gospel patron. You've got a gospel mission. Together, let's form a beautiful gospel partnership. Selena Hastings, a.k.a. Lady Huntington, her husband passed away. She was still running the estate. She hears Whitfield preach like many in that time, was blown away. She says, I believe in what you are proclaiming. I believe in the Christ you are proclaiming and the mission that you are on. 
and I think you need some support. I will partner with you as a gospel patron as you continue the gospel mission, and together we'll form a beautiful gospel partnership. The same could be said for John Thornton and John Newton. I'm not here to bore you with the history lesson. I'm here to tell you this is how the mission of God always advances throughout history. God's people supports God's mission with God's resources, and we see multiplication and kingdom advance throughout our world. And the ex at the end of Acts chapter 4, we're told that Barnabas sells some property and he brings the proceeds of that and he gives it to the apostles to support the work of the early church. Luke chapter 8, as Jesus and his disciples are traveling from city to city, village to village, we're told, after he uh, healed three women from being demon-possessed, Joanna, Susanna, and Mary Magdalene, we're told that those three women supported the ministry of Jesus and the disciples, quote, out of their means. That God always supports that the way the mission of God advances is God's people come alongside and say, we'll be gospel patrons, and together we're going to form a beautiful gospel partnership, and we'll see what God does in our city, in our community, in our world. And friends, this is where I have to take a parenthetical pause in the midst of the sermon to thank you. Last year, your generosity to our six-month-old church plant, the West Church, was instrumental and strategic in Essentially, I told the earlier service, it was rocket fuel that helped catapult us into the stratosphere to continue moving forward in order for us to live out our mission of transforming our community with the love of God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So all the people that have been loved, the gospel that has been preached, the groups that have been forming, the community that has been transformed, the organizations like the landing across the street from us that we partner with, the joy that has been erupting in that small pocket of southwest Houston where we live, it is, you are a part of that. Your generosity towards us last year continues on. You became a gospel patron. You joined with us on our gospel mission, and together we're forming a beautiful gospel partnership. So from everyone at the West Church, thank you. Thank you. But that's not all he says. Verse 19, if you thought it was getting good, it just got gooder. I know that's not grammatically correct, but when you preach, you can say stuff that nobody really well. It gets better, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What, here's what I love about this. Oftentimes, one of the things that holds people back from generosity is thinking about what they're going to lose. Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Don't focus on what you're losing. Think about what you're gaining. He says, every need of mine, every single need of mine will be met and has been met by my great God, and he's using you in order to do that. Told the service earlier last night, I had a phone call from a friend of mine. Mm, that's a loose word. I had a phone call from, from a guy that I know. And he said, man, I, I just came into $5 million. I got excited because as a church planner, you're always looking for people to help support the vision. <laughs> so, you know, I was on the couch. He said, I got $5 million. Said, $5 million? Okay. So, all right, man, uh, well, what do you need me for? You need some spiritual guidance. You need some coaching. You know, I don't, no, no background in finance, but I'm going to coach you. Uh, he said, I, I'm struggling with giving 1%, man. He said, 1%? He said, yeah. He said, I, if, if I gave the West Church 1% of that, what would y'all do with it? 
say less. Man, we, will, we, we partner with our school that we meet in. We have a, a nonprofit across the street that works in per helping prevent sex trafficking and human trafficking in our community. Uh, we got some big visions for a nonprofit we're trying to start. Uh, we're trying to see X amount of uh, West groups be multiplied throughout the year. Uh, we, we got plans for this, plans for that. We're trying to see these potholes on Bissonnette be remote, remolded uh, because the city hasn't got around to it. So we want the church and the community to know that we're here for you. I've, I've made all this stuff. He said, Man, I can't. He, he told me he had his finger on the button, but he said he couldn't do it. Now, later I found out, well, I presume he was drunk. But in the moment, I was like, dang. He said, I, I can't do it. I, I just can't give away this money that I just came into. And I thought, man, you're focused on what you're losing. If he was enough, you would look at what you were gaining. When you partner in God's great mission in the world. Listen, I, I, I haven't, this is my first Sunday here, but knowing your pastors, like I know them, I know you guys hear stories after story of life change. I know that you guys see tangible fruit. This building and this, these two buildings right next door are reminders that, that we're not just we're not just giving money to uh, warm seats and coffee. We're trying to transform our community that we're trying to embody truth, we're trying to proclaim, we're trying to declare, we want to see everyone's life because you can't take it with you, so you might as well send it on ahead. Since your generosity is making a kingdom impact, when you think about all that God has done, don't focus only on what you're losing, focus on what you're gaining, Paul says. Because verse 19 is one of those verses that you write on a piece of paper, you put in your wallet, you put in your purse, you write on the mirror in your restroom, and you pray back to God when times get tough. God, you promised, you said in your word that you would supply all of my needs, not all of my greeds, but all of my needs according to the, your riches and glory in Christ. So I'm trusting you. I'm trusting you. But as we get to the end of the passage, what I love is not only does he show us the beautiful relationship that joy and contentment have together, not only is he reminding us of one of the arsenals that we have, one of the great dragon slayers of the dragons of discontentment and gratitude and celebrating generosity, he lastly reminds us of how it happens. In our last point, verses 21 through 23, grace with you. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. He says, what you need in order to do this is grace. Why is that important? Well, number one, the generosity that he just spoke of, what motivates and what, what propels you to do that? He says, it's the Lord Jesus himself. The one who left his heavenly throne of heaven to come into the projects of earth to live the life you could not live, to die the death that you should have died. Here's what the gospel tells us. Here's what the crucifixion tells us, at least three things. Number one, that freedom ain't cheap. Number two, God loves you a lot. Number three, generosity always includes sacrifice. But what the resurrection tells us is at least two things. Number one, that our Savior defeated death. Hallelujah, amen. And number two, that God always fulfills his promises. That when he says, I'm going to take care of you, you could take it to the bank and cash it in. And now he ends, he says, I want grace to go with you. He sends his greetings and he says, hey, I'm sending greetings. Uh, the, those who are in Caesar's household also send you greetings. When I first read that, my soul was doing backflips and doing cartwheels because if you understand, Paul's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. The head honcho, the El Capitan, the guy who was running all of Rome would be Caesar. 
Most commentators would agree that he's not referring here probably to Caesar's immediate household, but to those that are under Caesar's care, like soldiers and slaves. Either way, here's what I love about it. Paul's saying, yo, even though I'm in physical chains, I'm still seeing spiritual chains being coming off of those in Caesar's household. That I can have joy even in prison because God's still at work. That nothing, not hardship, not imprisonment, nothing can stop the work of God in the world. Even those in Caesar's household send you greetings. When you turn on the news and you look at our world, if all you see is fear and you just want to run and hide in your safe Christian huddle, Philippians 4 reminds you, no, 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 you were built for this. You were made for a time like this, in a world like this. And maybe some in your neighborhood, in your school, at your job, will experience the freedom of seeing chains come off because of your faithfulness on demonstrating and proclaiming the truth of the gospel and what Christ has done. Last thing as I take my seat, Paul ends by saying grace with you. In all 13 New Testament letters, Paul begins and ends the same way. He begins by saying grace to you, and he ends by saying grace with you. He begins by saying grace to you because he wants the grace of God to go towards the church as they're hearing his letter being read to them, in the, for many of them, for the first time. So some of the things he says are kind of hard. Says, I, want, I want God's grace to come towards you. But then he ends with grace with you at the end of all 13 of his New Testament letters because he wants the grace of God to go with them as they go out into the world and demonstrate the truth of God. So as I prepare to take my seat, I pray that the grace of God has come towards you in these last 30 minutes or so as you have heard Philippians chapter 4 read and prayed and sung and preached over you. And now as we prepare to depart from this place but never to, to depart from his presence, I pray the grace of God would go with you as you go back out into your neighborhoods, into your spheres of influence to proclaim declare and rejoice that your joy is not for sale. Father, we thank you for the goodness that we have in you, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, and for your love. You are our firm foundation on which we stand. You are our safety. You are the one we run to. You are our shelter in the storm. God, for those of us who are here and are walking in the light of your grace for the first time, help us. Help us not to turn back when things get tough, when life gets hard. God, for those of us who are here and we are wrestling with contentment, may we lean on the God who is our strength. Overwhelm us with a tsunami of joy. May our lives be marked by a joy that can only be found in the risen and resurrected Lord. It's in whose name we pray. Amen.